2,500 years ago in a small kingdom at the foot of the Himalayas in a township or an area that was occupied by a clan called the Shakyas. This is now located near the border of Nepal and India. There was a young prince that was born and they named the prince Siddhartha. And the meaning of this name is he whose wishes are fulfilled. And during that time, there was uh, prophecies from the great prophets of that time that said that either this young man, this young prince Siddhartha, would be a world monarch or he would become a fully enlightened being, a Buddha. Of course, since his father, the king, wanted an heir to his monarchy, he did everything possible to prevent his son from uh, walking the spiritual path, from becoming enlightened. He wanted him to inherit the kingdom, the throne, so that it would continue. So the king did everything possible. He contrived every possible pleasant surrounding for the young prince. He, uh, he didn't uh, spare any expense to surround the prince as he was a young child and a boy and a, and a young man, to surround this uh, young prince with every possible luxury. So the prince grew up and he got married, married a beautiful young woman of that uh, area. And uh, he even had three palaces provided by the king, one for every season of the year. One day, a thought struck this young prince that he had not been beyond the village, his town that he hadn't really seen anything outside his experience of royalty, where his father had contrived everything to be pleasant and beautiful for him. So he asked Chana, his charioteer, to take him outside of the village to be able to experience what was outside of what was familiar to him. And so his father and mother dreaded this time because it was a sign that the prophecies were being fulfilled, that he may begin to turn at this time towards becoming a fully enlightened being. So the king was determined to cover everything up that was unpleasant. He had the roads strewn with flowers. This is how the, the story goes. And he hid all the beggars and those who were infer, uh, sick and aged. And he only let the young and the beautiful out in the streets. And so all the preparations were taken to cover up what was difficult to face, to make sure that the, the prince would continue to want, or he would be inspired to want to be the uh, next um, monarch of that area, and eventually a world monarch. But Siddhartha's fate was more powerful. 
than all of this. His fate to become fully enlightened was much more powerful. And the next day, he rode off with Chana into the village. So as he rode off, it was a beautiful day. The, the sun was shining and the birds were chirping. And uh, he went past the village walls. And all of a sudden appeared to him within all of this beauty a toothless, wrinkled old man. And Siddhartha had never seen such a sight before because he had been surrounded by youth, beauty, everything pleasant. He had never had the opportunity to open to this other side of life in, in that particular birth of his. So this man that appeared to him was all bent and twisted and blind, and he was quite a pitiful sight. And so he turned to Chana, his charioteer, and he asked Chana, what was that? This apparition just came out of nowhere, and it disappeared. And Chana said, that is an old man, sire. And the Buddha asked Chana, will we become that also? Will that happen to us? And Chana said, yes, this is indeed one of the truths of life. And so they went on. They continued to go further beyond the walls of what was familiar. And there appeared another. There was another apparition. And this apparition was a sick man. And this person was uh, all sweaty and frail and bony and um, feverish and coughing up phlegm and looking very tormented. And the Buddha again, the Buddha-to-be again, had never seen such a sight. So he asked uh, his charioteer, Chana, what was that after this particular apparition disappeared? And Chana said, that is a sick man, sire. And the Buddha-to-be asked, will this also happen to us? And he said, yes. Chana said, yes, this is possible. The body also becomes sick. It becomes old, and it becomes sick, and we face the many difficulties with that. So they went on, and as they went even further away from the domain of what was familiar, they came across a man that was laying still on a board, and it was being carried by quite a few people. And these people were wailing and crying and carrying on. And the man wasn't moving at all. And so Siddhartha asked Chana, what was that? And Chana said, this is a dead man. And the Buddha-to-be asked, is this man not asleep? And Chana said, no, sire, this man is dead. The life in his body has gone out. And so the Buddha-to-be asked, will this also happen to us? And Chana said, yes, this happens to all beings. So as they continued, they came across the fourth heavenly messenger. And this messenger was a wandering monk. And as he wandered through the, what in that part of the land was more natural, there was chaos there, Amidst the, conf the confusion and turmoil, this wandering monk had a very peaceful gait, and he had an air about him of serenity. 
there was a nobility to his being. And so the Buddha-to-be asked about this man, this being. And Chana answered that this is a monk, a person who has opened his heart and mind and begun to discover how to truly align oneself with life. So these four heavenly messengers connected the prince, Prince Siddhartha, to countless lifetimes of practice. It connected him to a very deep urge to want to understand the truth, to want to live the truth. It deepened in him a sense of inquiry about life. What is the nature of this body and mind? It began to deepen in him. What is the nature of suffering? Is there a cause to this suffering? Is there an end? Is there a path to the end? So it opened in him this deep sense of inquiry and this deep spiritual urge to experience the answers for himself. And so the final part of his journey began and the deepest commitment to truth was born in him at that time with these four heavenly messengers. If we look at just our practice here in the hall, even in one sitting or in one day, we many times have these four heavenly messengers or different versions of them appear to us. And we can see that even, you know, this, this um, story is maybe mythological, maybe it's true, but it really points to our own opening to the truth that these experiences that we have of difficulty, of challenge, of pain, of suffering in our own bodies and minds opens us to begin to have a sense of inquiry, to begin to want to know for ourselves. It's interesting to note that the Buddha ventured beyond his familiar terrain in this story. And that's what we're doing here. That's what the practice is, giving us the stability and courage to do, is to venture beyond our familiar terrain to be able to touch those places that are very difficult to touch or to open to. So we have the conditions here to be able to do that. What's so interesting about the Buddha in that he ventured beyond familiar terrain is more that he got really curious about what was happening. That was the energy that led him, this kind of curiosity. He got really curious about life. It was this spirit of investigation, of wanting to know for himself, that led him beyond the palace walls, that led him beyond the, the town that he lived in, that led him to a place where he could really face reality as it was. 
It's a spirit of curiosity, of investigation. If we can touch into that in our practice, that can give us a lot of energy and courage to keep going. See, I have a writing by Albert Einstein. And all of us know what a genius he was. And uh, this is what he wrote about curiosity. I think that people generally overestimate me. I realize, of course, the value of my contributions to science, but I don't consider myself superior or different than any other man. I'm just, I'm, I'm not more gifted than anyone else. I'm just more curious than the average person. So he attributed his sort of uh, brilliance to this curiosity. Don't you ever really get curious about this body and mind? About where our thoughts come from? How do they form? Where do they go? I mean, not in an intellectual sense, but in a way of really experiencing that directly. I mean, really check it out. Have there moment, been moments in your practice when you just really got curious about all of that? What about this subtle feeling of incompleteness that we always have? You know, we feel relatively content and quiet. Everything's going pretty well here. We feel safe. We, maybe we've just had a good meal, maybe even a nap and we come and sit down on our cushions, and still there's some vulnerability, incompleteness that we feel. Why is the moment never enough? These are curiosities, questions that we have, we begin to have about life. What is this feeling of quiet desperation, even when everything is still? Does this desperation or this suffering pain, does it have a root? Does it have an end? There's a story about, um, I think you pronounce it Ishi, Indian, and this was a tribe that lived on the west coast here in the U.S. And um, they found one of the last members, or I think it was the last member of this tribe, and he had not um, been exposed so much to society, you know, the, the fast pace of society and, and all the, the electronic age and the computer age. I guess it, the computers didn't exist at that time, but he lived mostly in the forests. And so <clears throat> they were bringing him to a place where they could um, begin to know him better and what his mind was like. And so they were really doing sort of a, a scientific project on him. So the, he came out of the woods into a busy train station. And he went through it, you know. He, he let himself kind of open to all of that and get on the train and begin to go through crowds and different things that were happening that he had never been exposed to. And his escort asked him, why are you able to do all of this? 
you know, I w I've watched you, and I see that you're able to really move through this in a way that I didn't expect at all. And this Indian said, life has taught me to be more curious than afraid. If we can have that sense of investigation, that sense of energy towards what is unknown instead of this fear, we would be able to open to terrain in our minds and hearts that is uh, really important to discover. So we begin to wonder. You know, there, there was a time in my own practice where I just began to wonder, what is this body anyway? Apart from the names that we call it, apart from the concept of body, of woman, of human being, of Kamala, what is the body? What is it apart from the physical processes even that are apparent, that, are, that we know about because you know, we've gone to school and we've learned it in our science classes? What is the body even apart from that? We know the word, for example, knee or hand as a concept. But here in the hall, we close our eyes and we begin to experience it more directly. We bring uh, compassionate attention to the knee, for example, and we begin to see that it's a swirling mass of various different phenomena arising and passing away. Hardness, softness, tickling, pressure, tension, heat, coolness. And we begin to experience it underneath the conceptual understanding of it underneath our intellectual understanding of it. So what about this heart and mind? What is that? What is the underlying force of love and hate? Don't you ever wonder that? What's beneath all of that? What's driving all of that? Apart from the storylines that we have of ourselves, of our lives, There's a beautiful uh, poem by Mary Oliver, who's uh, uh, one of my favorite poets. And Mary Oliver is, uh, I love about her writing is that she's so inspired by nature around her. And she always has this sense of deeply experiencing it that I read sort of in between the lines. I sense in between the lines of her poems. And in this particular one, it shows at least her courage to, to ask the questions and to look more deeply. So this particular poem of hers is called The Summer Day, which is like today. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper. I mean this one, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes, 
Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know what exactly a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is your plan? What do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? What she's pointing to, or what this poem is pointing to for me in terms of our practice here today, is not the conceptual answers to these questions, but that we're willing to look more deeply. We're willing to kneel down, to fall down, you know, in, in the grass, and to look more deeply, to see the finer, the more subtle workings of the mind and the body. Here we're not asking or expecting answers in conceptual terms, from conceptual reality, but we're going in a, in a direction that allows us to experience ultimate reality. It, that is experiencing what's happening in each moment very directly and intimately. So what is, what's the difference between ultimate reality and conceptual reality? So take, for example, a bell, this, this bell right here. In conceptual reality, we could describe it with our words. We could say, this bell is big. And for some of us, this bell would be beautiful. This bell is black or dark. We might remember the vibration of this bell. We might remember that it's pleasant. We might say this bell is big, it's round. And those are all ways of experiencing this bell with conceptual reality. But when we experience it in another way, when, we, when our eyes are closed and our minds are very quiet and still, and we experience very directly the awareness of hearing of the sound of the bell, when we experience this, To experience it in this way, in a very direct, intimate way, without the words, without the concepts, this is the experience of ultimate reality. And there comes a time in each of our lives when we know that this is the only way for us to know the truth for ourselves, that it's no longer sufficient to know it from second-hand knowledge from someone else's experience, even if that someone is a very lofty being, that it's, it's important to begin to know for ourselves. 
So as we navigate this inner terrain of our minds, hearts, and bodies, and we become what we call deep ecologists, what do we investigate? What do we explore? What is it? What we explore is only the present moment. This is the only thing that we investigate. Not in the past, not in the future. We know that if we're remembering the past or planning the future or worrying of the future, that this is not what this kind of investigation is all about, this direct experience of every moment's every moment of life. The present moment is the only place that we can find the truth, the deepest truth. It's free from our intellectual thought of what's happening. It's, it's a way in which we experience the moment with a beginner's mind, a mind that's um, sort of empty, or we might say still. Manindra had this, one of my teachers, my first teacher, had this kind of beginner's mind. Um, He would always call it mind of child when he would get into that mode. And uh, I remember times when he stayed with us and me and my family And he would get really curious about everything. I mean, it got to the point where, you know, my kids were kind of still growing up. And you know how you get really frustrated and tired out answering questions from (laughs) the kids? I would get tired. I'd sort of sometimes get paranoid that Manindra would ask me a question about, what is this? How does this work? Where does the water come from in this district? You know, and just questions about everything. just like a five-year-old would ask, but he was really, really curious. I could just see him now. One time uh, he was in the garage and somebody was fixing the car in our garage, and the person who was fixing the car was all grimy and dirty and had smudge all over his face, and Manindra was standing there in this typical pose, you know, with his, he has these white robes and this little hat on that we used to call like, it looks like a little ice cream (laughs) cup, and so sometimes I'd call him the ice cream man. And he would stand there with one one hand on his uh, hip, and he'd have his uh, head underneath the car, and he'd be asking this person, what does that do? How does that work with this? And what... What if this go, if you take this out, will it still work? And he had this incredibly curious mind. And that really inspired me about him, that he would ask a whole lot of questions all the time. He, he was even, he loved nature, the, the movies on nature. And any video I could get, he would just love to watch the nature videos, you know, the natural, na- National Geographic and the nature program. And we even had to change the time when we did our weekly sitting in the community because it coincided with the nature program. <laughs> he, was, he just loved to see, you know, how things worked, how things were going on in life. And um, once he was in the hospital, and he was undergoing an operation, and so he 
he asked, he was asked if he wanted to get, you know, the Demerol to kind of quiet you down, and the, and also um, something was injected in his arm so that he would go to sleep so he could have the operation. Well, I, I was asking him about the Demerol. I said, Muniji, they're going to come in and ask if they want you to take this certain pill. And it, it just helps to give you more serenity, to get, make you more peaceful and calm. And I don't think you need that, you know. But uh, So maybe you could just pass that up. And But they will give you uh, something in your arm to make you fall asleep. And he said, oh, no, no, no. I, uh, I want all those medicines. I want to try them all. <laughs> He wanted to know how it felt when he took the Demerol, because he, he just wanted to know, you know, how does it feel when people take this stuff? <laughs> and um, so the nurse, they gave him the Demerol, and I was standing next to him, just kind of making, watching him, making sure, and the nurse came in and, you know, was going to inject the, the um, thing in his, uh, in his uh, arm. And the nurse asked him, what are you feeling? And that was the wrong question. <laughs> when, you know, it's just like making a, a report to the teacher. You just tell every single little bit of what's happening. Well, first, there's this, you know, ah, oh, there's this kind of floating feeling and lightness. And I can't remember what he said, but he just began to explain everything. And <laughs> He has this, he had this kind of childlike beginner's mind, you know, that as Suzuki Roshi said, in a beginner's mind there are many possibilities, in an expert's mind there are very few. So he, he approached life like that, you know, there, he was clearly so learned, and it, we used to call him the walking Dhamma encyclopedia. But he would he would ask questions as if he were in such a humble way as if he knew nothing. And um, so this was a kind of investigation, the kind of curiosity that inspired me, the kind of energy to want to know, this wholesome desire of wanting to know the truth. This childlike mind this, um, not too long ago, a few months ago, I met with my daughter, who also has a daughter, and uh, so I, I wanted to take my granddaughter someplace special. So I took her to the San Diego Aquarium, and that's where my daughter lives, that's where they live. And so, oh, she is a handful. She's four at the time. She just turned five uh, since I've been here. And... She, of course, you know, she's the apple of my eye. She just, she can't do anything wrong, almost. Especially when she's sleeping. <laughs> and and she's, um, she has this sense of, like, everything that she sees is new. So I'd been with her for a few days, and I was just really tired out once. And this was a time when I was taking her to the aquarium. But I wanted to really make use of the time because I only get to see her about once a year. So we go to the aquarium, and my daughter has this habit of whenever I'm around that 
she puts me in complete responsibility and authority for my granddaughter. Is anyone a grandmother that knows that? <laughs> where, <laughs> where all of a sudden, you know, the daughter gets to disappear, and uh, I'm, I have to run myself ragged trying to keep up with my granddaughter. <laughs> so we go, this aquarium is kind of circular, and so we go through all the different windows, you know, of all the different fish and the, um, the sea life. And every single window we come to is wonderful and new to her. You know, and she's, she comes upon one and she's got her eyes wide open. And she says, Nana, Nana, look at this, look at this. And so her, that sense of energy, that sense of kind of seeing it for the first time, you know, seeing it with kind of those empty, that kind of empty mind. Seeing the colors that she never saw before, the movement of the jellyfish in the water. And all the different ways the fish are, you know, the colorations. It was so wonderful to feel kind of like that exchange of energy from her. And to feel that sense of investigation from her. And so we went around and we came back to the very first one that we had seen the very first time that she was oogled and ogled in front of. And of course it was, you know, different formation. The fish were in different places and she looked at it as if it was brand new again, just with the same, look at this! And really a sense of exploration about it, of experiencing that moment. We have the opportunity to do that, but as adults, as more mature individuals, you know, with understanding that this opening to every newness to life can bring wisdom. A child doesn't have that, but we have developed that. We have a direction set for ourselves to understand life more deeply. And so we we can take every moment in with that sense. So, investigation is really deeply experiencing life, not on the conceptual level, but on this ultimate direct experience, very intimate level with life. It's the, investigation is the first of the arousing qualities or the energizing qualities or factors of the seven factors of enlightenment. So there's mindfulness, and then there are three energizing factors, one of which is, the first one of which is investigation, and then there's three tranquilizing factors. And later we'll go into that in more depth. But this is what investigation is, part of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's actually activated by mindfulness. It's supported by mindfulness, where, where mindfulness uh, doesn't stay on the surface of things, as Steve explained the other evening. It sinks deeply into the moment, into the experience of the moment. And so in this kind of sinking deeply, or this um, 
kind of merging with the moment, we're able to experience it in a much deeper way, not just on the surface of things. It's like a stone that you throw in the water. You know, you, uh, the stone kind of sinks to the bottom. And as it's going through the layers of the pond, it experiences many different layers of it, it, not just the surface of it. Without mindfulness and, and investigation, we wouldn't go beyond the familiar terrain of our minds and bodies. Without mindfulness and investigation, we would just float on the surface of things, just constantly think about how things are, rather than experience them, intellectualize them. Without mindfulness and investigation, a lot of doubt can arise. Doubt is the lack of investigation. When there is doubt, there is not enough investigation, and it can paralyze us. So why are we able to experience life more deeply? with investigation, because we get to know that part of our minds and hearts, the terrain of our hearts and minds that we haven't known before. And that in itself can be really fascinating, to know that more deeply than we've known. There was once in a time of my practice when I was um, experiencing a lot of lightness of body and mind. And this lightness, as, as this lightness was there, um, when I sat or walked around, it never felt like I could, I was touching anything. It felt like I was just kind of floating around, literally, all the time. And, uh, and for a while that was <clears throat> very pleasant. There was a lot of attachment to it, and so because of that attachment, I sort of stayed in that parking lot for a long, long time. And um, I reported it to Sayadaw Pandita, and what he asked me to do was to know the moment when that lightness arose know the moment of its arising. Not just of its changing or passing away nature, but to know the moment of its arising. And he said, until you know that moment, don't come back to me for an interview. And that, it was really a very um, uh, strict way of pointing me towards looking more deeply. But it was it really um, made me do that. I became much more careful with mindfulness and really looked to what the balance was, what, I, what was needed to keep the body-mind balance and to look very deeply into each moment's experience. So that question or that direction brought me actually deeper into the practice, and I hadn't understood truly what that meant before. When did it arise? When does it arise? 
When we have this kind of experience, it builds our confidence. When we have the experience of understanding life more deeply, experiencing life more deeply, it builds confidence and courage in our ability. And this too dispels doubt. There's um, there's an ability for us to go to those dark places in our hearts, those dark places in our minds that we're not able to go to without mindfulness, without this sense of investigation, curiosity. There's a trail in the, in the place where I live in Maui. Uh, we live on the side of a mountain and it's 10,000 feet high. It's called Haleakala, it's a volcano. And there's a trail that goes down called the Switchback, one of the trails that go into the crater at the top of this mountain. So the crater's at 10,000 feet, and this trail goes down to the 6,000-foot level. So you, you can hike quite a bit down into the crater. And I've hiked this trail quite a few times already, in, of course, in the daytime. And um, once I decided to go on a full moon night. And it was quite a, an adventure for me. It was quite a challenge for me to do that. And so I began my descent on this trail. And um, usually people do this in Maui. They, they take that hike on a full moon night. So I wasn't too afraid of being alone because there are usually some people that you meet. But this trail is kind of carved out on the side of the inward part of the crater. And a lot of the places on, on the side of the trails are very steep. I mean, if you fall over, in some places, you know, you've had it. That's it for you. So you really have to be careful when you're going on the switchback trail down into the crater. And as I walked down into the crater, and darker because there were clouds that evening, I began to remember what the crater was like, what that, what that trail was like. And I, I could be in the present moment with each step as much as possible, but there were many moments when fear arose or a sense of confusion arose or a sense of not knowing my way, what, what was next. And there was this sense of it not being unfamiliar terrain because I had gone down that trail before. I had hiked down that path before. And this is what it's like when we are able to investigate those, that terrain of our minds and hearts when we go there and we bring some light to it, the light of investigation, the light of mindfulness, and we're able to see how it is there. It's no longer unfamiliar. It's no longer unknown to us. So that when we find ourselves there again, there doesn't have to be this fear that comes up towards this unknown place. So it really builds our confidence in ourselves, our ability to know the way. When we're able to do this, there's usually a sense of stillness or quietness, a sense of equanimity in the mind. And all of these, all of these factors are giving us this sense of safety 
that enables us to open to the present moment more in, in a much more alive and fearless way. There are many supportive qualities to investigation and mindfulness. There's a, uh, in the Abhidhamma, which is the Buddhist psychology, I found uh, this kind of, this list, you know, there's so many lists. I found this list of all of these mental states, these 52 mental states, and within these mental states there are these beautiful states of consciousness, beautiful states of mind that are um, listed here. And all of these states of mind are around us, are nearby, and quite supportive when mindfulness is there. Manindra used to tell me that when mindfulness is is there, all the beautiful states of mind are nearby. It's like a mother with children, usually. It's not all, in our society, mothers and children aren't necessarily that close. So these are the beautiful mental states. Confidence, mindfulness, modesty, conscience, non-attachment, loving-kindness, equanimity, tranquility, lightness of mind, pliancy of mind, adaptability of mind, proficiency of mind, rectitude of mind, right speech, right action, right livelihood, compassion, sympathetic joy, wisdom. All of these are available to us when mindfulness is there. And this is what makes us feel safe, gives us this, the feeling of safety to open. So with this safety, this ability to open, we're really able to immerse ourselves into the moment of life and not feel that we have to sort of be tossed here and there by whatever is happening in that moment this sense of mindfulness and investigation give us a very, very strong anchor with which to experience life and the deeper understanding of life. A metaphor might be like when you're standing on a shoreline and a wave comes and we can feel ourselves, sort of allow ourselves to feel that wave kind of wash over us because we feel pretty well anchored. And as that wave washes over us, we can feel the wave very directly, very intimately, you know, not in a conceptual way, but in a very direct experience way. We experience the flow of all the sensations of that particular wave on the bodies, on our body, how it is experienced with awareness of smell, awareness of taste. When the inner waves of anger, sadness, happiness, impatience, doubt arise, this is how we can experience them in this very intimate, direct way. We begin, as we go more deeply, we begin to see the certain processes that are in the body and mind. And we see that there are 
there is this process in the body and there is this process in the mind and they work together somehow. And with investigation, we mostly see that this, these two processes of the body and mind share certain characteristics that are quite universal. And these characteristics are the impermanence of all of life, anicca. We experience that really directly, very directly. We see the arising sometimes, the changing, the passing away of a moment's experience. We understand deeply that there's nothing that's static. There's nothing that's permanent. Yes, we can say that, for example, this, this clock here is an impermanent, that sometimes, that at some, sometime it will break, that it won't function. But we begin to experience the impermanence of the moment over and over and over again. And there comes a time when that experience kind of hits us so deeply that it opens in us a particular, a wisdom that is so close, that wisdom that is so close that opens us to the true nature of our being. So when we experience the body deeply, moments of pain just become moments of sensation, a flow of sensation passing through us. When we look closely, these moments of sensation begin to get broken down. We don't see the, the, um, the, the staticness of it. We don't see the solidity of it. They begin to be broken down. We see the pressure, tension, heat, you know, many different moments we experience. And the pain just becomes pure sensation. What about the mind? We also begin to experience countless moments in the mind, different thought formations, visions. Recently, just before I came here, I was practicing at home. And... uh, Uh, where I live, it's surrounded by a lot of pasture land, so there's not many homes around there, and there's a lot of sense of seclusion where I live. So we live on the side of a mountain, about a thousand feet elevation, and on one side you look up to the top of the mountain, and there are all these, you see all the cloud formations during the day, and then on the other side you look out towards the ocean. And I would love to sit on that porch that faces the, the uh, top of the mountain. And I would just begin to watch how the formations of the clouds would come right out of the land of the mountain and begin to see the parallel of that to thoughts, how they would just rise out of the mind because of certain conditions and also begin to see how when these clouds began to arise out of the certain conditions of the land, the conditions that existed, that they would change and they would disappear. And that would be so parallel to the experience of thought formations, that this was such a deep bringing me inward 
a teaching of that. There's um, a book that I was reading when I was on retreat called Enlightened Courage. It's by Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche. And he's who was just an incredible Tibetan teacher man. And I wanted to have something that inspired me as I went along in my retreat. And um, he says this about the dissolving. Just as clouds form, last for a while, and then dissolve back into the empty sky, so thoughts also arise, remain for a while, and then vanish in the emptiness of mind. In reality, nothing at all has happened. We see this over and over again, this sort of insolidity of the mind, this impermanent nature of the mind also. And yet, it has so much um, potency. You know, it seems like sometimes I, I remember that the movie about the Wizard of Oz and the, and the man behind the curtain and he's shouting out orders, you know, and um, then he says, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. And, and it's like that. We, you know, we, we take all these orders that this mind just puts out without looking closely into its really insubstantial nature. And we don't look closely. We don't see what's behind it all. So with investigation, we begin to see what's behind it all, the impermanence, the insubstantiality of it. Nothing is lasting. You know, so we begin to get, we begin to really grok so deeply that there's there's nothing that lasts, you know, so why do we hang on to anything? If we hang on, it hurts. If we hold on, it hurts. So we begin to let go through this teaching, through what investigation brings us to. We see these characteristics of all of life, of phenomena at its deep level the characteristic of anicca or impermanence, dukkha or the, insub- or, or the uh, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, the insubstantiality. And it leads us to a place where we don't hold on so tightly and we don't hold on at all. We don't hold on to the moment's experience. We don't hold on to a sense of self which gives us a lot of suffering. We experience life as it really is, very, very deeply. We align ourselves with the truth of life instead of resisting it. So I'd like to end with them what Sri Nisargadatta wrote about investigation and the body-mind. And hopefully it will open us to a little more curiosity, a little more depth about what's going on underneath everything. Is the mind real? 
It is but a collection of states, each of them transitory. How can a succession of transitory states be considered real? Even the basic idea, I am the body, is a mental idea, and it does not last. It comes and goes like all other states. The illusion of being the body, mind, is there only because it is not investigated. The illusion of being the body and mind is there only because it is not investigated. All states of mind, all names and forms of existence are rooted in non-investigation. What he's saying at the end is all states of suffering really are rooted in non-investigation. So can we bring this sense of curiosity to our practice? Can we ask the questions that lead us to experiencing it directly, deeply? So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.